All right, if you've got your Bible, make your way to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. While you're turning there, quick plug for next week, uh, we're starting a new series I'm extremely excited about. I know, I know, I know, I'm excited about every series, but I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we're going to be doing a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. I know, that's right. Some, did you hear those, oh, like that's because there are some people that know what's in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's my goal to have you thoroughly depressed by Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And in all seriousness, here's why I'm excited about this series. First of all, I love the book of Ecclesiastes because it takes a very honest look at life in a fallen world. And uh, a lot of times Christians can't do that, like have an honest conversation about how life really is and how to find meaning in it. And listen, everybody is searching for meaning. You're searching for meaning. The people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, everybody is on a search to find meaning in life. And we're going to take that on as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes called The Search. So please invite family members, invite friends, invite uh, people that you go to school with or work with, because they're searching too. And we want to discover together where meaning is found, okay? So that's next week. Excited about that. That'll take us through the rest of the fall. If you're not too depressed by Christmas, who knows, maybe into the new year. We'll see. Uh, but this morning, we're going to finish our series we've called Commit. Uh, the last few weeks in September, we've been taking a chapter of Philippians each week and looking at some things we must be committed to as Christians if we are following Christ. Uh, the key word for chapter 1, if you remember, was ministry. Paul's in prison. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain about being in prison. What he does is he rejoices because he sees prison as an opportunity to serve Christ. And we challenged you to commit to seeing all of your life as an opportunity to serve Jesus no matter where you are. Number two, the key word for Philippians chapter two was unity. We want you to be of one mind, one accord. All this culture of individuality was impacting their unity. And Paul says, I want you to consider others more important than yourself. You've got to commit to unity. Number three, the key word in Philippians chapter three was maturity. Paul, a man who saw Christ physically on the road to Damascus, is now old and in prison and yet says, I press on to know Christ more, right? Secretariat, everybody else says you ought to be slowing down and you keep running harder to know Jesus. That's the life of following Christ. Well, now chapter 4, we're going to look at something else we need to commit to, and we're going to pick up in verse 10. So if you're able to stand, please do so. As we honor the reading of God's Word, I love this passage for us this morning. Philippians 4, Paul in prison writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes this, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. of Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through Him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. And it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, 
When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed a joy uh, to be here in this moment with this faith family. I love our gatherings. Where we come now to this point where we are ready to listen to your word. Holy Spirit, come teach us. We want to see past the lies of our culture. We want to see how life is truly lived. Help us understand the kingdom of God and not the culture of man. Holy Spirit, come and teach us now the beauty, the secret of this passage that we just read. All for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you been feeling depressed lately? Maybe like you don't quite measure up. Have you been feeling like, you know, your life could be just a little better than it is right now? If that's the case, if that's you, if you've ever felt that way, it's probably because you've been spending too much time on Facebook. Now, we kind of laugh at that, but that's actually the conclusion that was uh, published by a study in the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin a few years ago. This is actually a pretty famous uh, study that was done. And what they discovered was that individuals that spent a lot of time on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, things like that, that they were more likely to have stronger feelings of depression, loneliness, and a lower view of self. And here's why. I thought this was fascinating and really not surprising. Here's what they said, quote, we noticed that people seem to feel particularly crummy about themselves after logging on to the site. In this case, it was Facebook. And scrolling through other people's attractive photos, accomplished bios, and chipper status updates. And then this line is what jumped out. They were convinced that everyone else was living a perfect life. You see, it is very easy in a social media culture to look at a profile, to look at a status, to, to look at a snapshot and assume that that represents the entirety of someone's life. And in comparison to ours, we begin to resent our own. And that's not just a social media temptation, is it? We do this in a variety of ways. It may be through the movies we watch or the TV shows or the magazines we flip through or the conversations we have with people at work. But there's always that tendency in life to look at somebody else's life, to look at somebody else's marriage, to look at somebody else's finances and begin to resent what we have. 
You see, everybody, and we didn't need this study to prove it, everybody in this room, including myself, struggles in some way with being content. We all do. And it's very difficult to be content in a culture like ours, isn't it? Because our culture is driven by what I call the the desire to acquire. I got to get it. And that's followed by the desire to consume. I got to get more of it. And that's desire, that's followed by the desire to upgrade. I got to get the newest version of it, so long as it doesn't burst into flames or whatever, right? I mean, I got to get the newest, latest model. In fact, marketing, the whole goal of that is to create a dissatisfaction in you with what you have, so you'll want more. That's why, faith family, I'm so glad you're here this morning. That's why we need Philippians chapter 4. Because in this passage, there is, right here, there is a secret that very few people have. There is a secret about life that very few people live. It's the secret of contentment. Paul here is a man who is in prison. His circumstances are not very good. He's chained to a guard. He's awaiting possibly execution. He doesn't know what the verdict's going to be in his case. And what he wants, follow me, he wants to be with the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, I yearn for you all. He wants so desperately to be with them, but he can't be with them because he's in prison. How many of you have ever been in a season in your life where where you were or where you are right now is not where you want to be? Anybody been there? Like you felt confined in some way that where you were is not where you wanted to be and there wasn't anything you could really do about it. Confined. Confined to a wheelchair. Confined because of a health issue. Confined because of an economic situation that you were in. Confined because of singleness. And where you were is not where you wanted to be. That's exactly where Paul is. But notice what he's able to say because he's learned a secret. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is saying, even though I am not where I want to be, I'm in prison, but I want to be with you. Here's what I've learned. I'm content. I'm content even though I'm not where I want to be. I'm at rest. This word for contentment, it's an interesting word. The Greeks used it for... um, The idea of of, of independence, of self-sufficiency. The Stoics used it as a a detachment, uh, almost like an emotionless approach to life. But that's not how Paul means it. When Paul's using the word contentment, he's not saying this. Even though I'm not where I want to be, I don't care about anything. That's not what he's saying saying, even though I'm not where I want to be, I'm at peace with anything. Notice verse 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now notice verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The last phrase of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. So, so Paul is saying what contentment here is, and this is important, is not love whatever circumstances you're in. Woohoo! Prison! No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't have a drive in life. He has a drive in life. He wants to advance the mission. He wants to be with the Philippians. We want to grow the church. You want to grow the business. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not talking about emotionlessness. He's not talking about laziness. He's saying this. Even if I don't get what I want, even if I don't end up where I want to be, I'm good in God. It is soul rest. He is at peace because he has God. And if he never gets out of prison, he's okay with that. That's a secret faith family that very few people have. The secret of contentment to have their soul be at peace, at rest in God no matter what. For Paul, God is enough. I remember it's been about 17 years ago. I went on my first Mexico mission trip. I remember the whole week I went without a shower, the whole team without a shower. Uh, uh, the restroom was like a bucket and a place to hide. I know there's an image for you. Um, the, uh, the, the place we slept, we slept on just like a dirt floor. Uh, I mean, it was just an incredible week. And we were there building a home for a family uh, that did not have a home. And what what I remember like it was yesterday was this little boy. I went in with him to what they were living in. It wasn't hardly a home. It was just some wood pallets that were nailed together. And I, I watched him as he was eating a bowl of cereal and the flies consumed his cereal. And they would follow him as he would take the spoon up to his mouth. And he didn't even act like he noticed we went back outside and he caught this bug. In, in Tennessee, we called them June bugs, these big, thick bugs that would fly. And he tied a little string to the bug and he let it fly. <laughs> it's like it was a kite, you know, it's like a little toy plane. And then we came to the end of the week and we, we dedicated the home and we gave the family simple things like pillows and blankets. And I never forget the expression that they had on their face, and I kept struggling all week with the feeling like they were happier than I was. I remember I got on the plane, and I'm not making this up, and I'm not even really trying to be funny, but I pulled out a magazine from the little seat rack there in front, and I'm, I'm reading this article. I'm not making this up. On a $5,000 toilet to be introduced to the United States. It has a wireless remote, a deodorizer. Uh, an, an, like an air unit. I don't even know what that's for. Like, I, that's, I'm going to leave that there, you know. <laughs> I'm just thinking, what? And with everything I just experienced and everything I was reading about, I just remember that moment. The question I couldn't get off my mind was, is God enough? Is 
God enough. Could I say like the psalmist said in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is contentment. For Paul, God is enough. His soul is at rest because God is his portion. He wants to get out of prison, but if he doesn't get out of prison, he's good in God. And that's a secret that very few people have. But notice not just the example of this contentment. Then Paul talks about how the extremes of this contentment, that he has this in a variety of extremes. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. There's one. And I know how to abound. There's the other. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul has this contentment in two extremes of life. The first is abounding. Paul knew what it was like to go through seasons where everything was going well. I mean, all the desires were met. All the goals were being reached. There was plenty of money in his pockets. Everything was good, circumstantially. Have you ever been through one of those seasons in life? where everything seemed to be going fine. You find out you're pregnant, the, re the refrigerator's full, you got a raise at work, you found out it's not cancer, everything seemed to be going great. And the temptation is to think that in, in moments of abundance, it would be easy to be content, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the lie that we're fed. If you can just get enough, then you'll be content. But that misses Paul's point. Paul's point is to say that even in my abundance, I was able to experience contentment. Because here's the truth. Abundance has a way of creating discontentment. Listen, listen, you're not going to hear this in the world. Success sometimes creates the desire for more success to the point that you can never have enough. If our culture doesn't prove that, I do not know what does. In fact, let, let, me, let me put it to you this way. I want you to think right now about the time in your life you were most content. What was the time in your life where you were the most content? Here's what people tend to say. They'll say things like, boy, if I could just go back when I was a kid. I didn't have any worries. I didn't have any responsibilities. There was just a sense of freedom that I had then. I don't have now, or I'll hear married couples say this, oh, when we were first married, oh my goodness, we had the futon and the shag carpet and the lava lamp. We didn't have much, but we had love, right? With that kind of a thing. And it was just like, I'll hear people say, those were good times. You see, if abundance is what creates contentment, then why are so many Americans unhappy? Take, for instance, Michael Jordan. Yes, that Michael Jordan. Five-time NBA or six-time NBA champion. Five MVPs. Ten scoring titles. Fourteen all-star appearances. Billion-dollar shoe brand Michael Jordan. ESPN did a, an interview with him about life after basketball. 
And here's what they discovered. Talk about your segue to Ecclesiastes. Whew. Quote, Michael isn't happy. He is constantly searching for release. On the golf course, at the blackjack table, as an owner of the Charlotte Bobcats, and wishing he could return to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? And even after all his success, abundance, his restlessness remains. You see, there is a secret that even billion-dollar champion Michael Jordan hasn't found. It's the secret of contentment. Paul says it's not just in abounding, it's also in lacking. There were times in Paul's life when he suffered hunger, when he did not have plenty, when there wasn't a lot of money, when, when everything seemed to go wrong circumstantially. Anybody had a season like that? Anybody in a season like that? Where you're nervous to round the next corner because you have no idea what's waiting for you there? Where you prayed for the blessing of Abraham but received the suffering of Job? And the temptation in that moment is to think, well, how can I be content if I don't have anything? And that's Paul's point. The one consistent denominator in Paul's life was God, not things. Things come and go. And so Paul didn't put his contentment in things. He put his contentment in God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and will never leave you or forsake you. That's what Paul's point is. Because my contentment's not in things, the absence of things has no impact on my contentment. See, oh, what? Oh, faith family, do you want this? Oh, the, the, the peace, the soul rest, whether in good times or bad times, that's able to be at peace in God. This secret was so important to the Apostle Paul, he, he wants to pass it on to young Timothy. Uh, he's older. After the writing of, of Philippians, he writes a letter uh, to Timothy. And listen to what he says. This is 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Teenagers, you want great gain in life? Do you want great gain in life? It is godliness with contentment. That's, Paul says, great gain. For, here's why, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Some of you heard that before and you didn't know it was a Bible verse. But if we have food and clothing, th with this we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, that is to live richly, to desire more, fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge, listen, people into ruin and destruction. Hello. Anybody like amen the Apostle Paul? I wonder how many right here, eyes right here, I wonder how many relationships, business partnerships, friendships, marriages have been in this room, have either been destroyed or damaged because of the lack of contentment. Paul says this is a serious thing. Discontentment will lead you to ruin and destruction. 
Notice how he keeps, he keeps writing here. He says next, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. We again know it's not money, it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you say, well, that's good, that's fine, because I don't love money. Yeah, but you're dating it. You're at least going steady. All right, you've you've gone out a few times recently, right? I mean, I, I I might go as so far as to say there's kind of a love relationship there more than you know. And, and here's why: they often say that love will make you do stupid things. You've heard that, right? And that's true relationally. We know that. In fact, I pulled this out of a study on uh, the function of the brain. This is fascinating and true. Quote. Brain scans show that the region of the brain that is essential to judgment, that is the frontal cortex, shuts down when people fall in love. Sure, this is science. Researchers using MRI scans found that the frontal cortex deactivates when someone is shown a picture of the person they love, leading them to suspend all criticism and doubt. It's why theologian Bob Dylan said, you can't be wise and in love at the same time. This is true. And it's why you did stupid things when you were in love. You stood outside in the pouring rain with the boombox singing love songs to her in the window. You spent $50 on that stuffed animal that's not even worth two bucks. Love made you do stupid things. So how many of you have ever done something stupid with money? How many of you have ever done something with money and said, why did I buy that? Why did I do that? I can't believe I spent money on that. Why? Because love will make you do stupid things. Because whether you and I want to admit it or not, we are a little more in love with our things than we often give our hearts credit. Paul keeps writing, it is through this craving, that is discontentment, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's talking about the spiritual impact of discontentment. Let me just quickly say this. This is so, I think, profound. Paul is saying this, that one of the reasons why some of you are not engaged in your faith is because you're running after things to fulfill you that never will. I see it all the time. I'd love to give that way. I'd love to serve that way. I'd love to sacrifice in that way. But my schedule won't allow me. And why will your schedule not allow you? Because your schedule's so busy thinking that you can be content in the things of the world. Our lifestyle is a great indicator as to where we're trying to find contentment. Preach, preacher. That's a good point right there. Your lifestyle, my lifestyle, is a reflection of where we're trying to find contentment. And it can impact us in spiritual ways that we do not even see. It's a secret that most people don't have. Paul says, I'm content, verse 11, I'm content in abounding and in lacking, verse 12. And now here's the question we would say, but how do we do this? I mean, anybody want to say, this is hard. It is very difficult to live in this culture and be content like this. I need some strength. 
Well, good. You got verse 13. I can do all things through him that is Christ who strengthens me. This may be the most well-known and misquoted verse in the entire Bible. Amen. Oh, how many people misquote this verse every day. We have turned this into a slogan that with Jesus, I can do anything. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. I mean, I got Jesus, and I got Jesus. I can do anything. I, I, I can drive through the flood, no problem, because with Christ Jesus, I can do anything. Bench press 400 pounds, piece of cake. With Jesus, I can do anything. I mean, with the power and strength of Jesus, I can dunk the basketball. If I just believe it, there's nothing to You got this. You got this. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> oh, but that's how we quote this verse. Man, I got Jesus so I can do anything. Hey, right here, I'm sorry to ruin your little precious memory verse. Philippians 4.13 is not your pep talk in the morning to go conquer the mountains for Jesus. It's just not. It's not the verse. Context, context, context is kind of important if you want to get it right. Because the phrase, all things, in verse 13 is referring to the all circumstances of verse 12. In other words, here's how the verse rightly interpreted is. Paul can be content in all things, not because he has a superhuman ability, but because he has a supernatural strength that is given to him by God in Christ Jesus. That's the verse. I can't be content. I know you can't be content. That's why you need a power. The power of God that is given to you through Jesus Christ. It's why you can't be content like this without Jesus. There is a power and a strength that we receive in Him to live this way. It's like a pacemaker. If you're familiar with how a pacemaker works, when the heart needs power, it, it, it supplies that power. When the heart is about to fail, it gives it the power. It needs the strength to keep going. Here's the point. Christian, listen, God in Christ will supply the power you need in abundance and in lacking so that your heart will not fail. You see the text? This so is what we do at Berea, and we just walk through the text and talk about life. He's content. His soul's at rest in God, in abundance and in lacking, because what? Of the strength, the power, the energy that God gives him in Christ. Now, here's what some of you are thinking. He preached the wrong sermon. I read the bulletin. I saw him up on the screen when he walked up here. This sermon is supposed to be about generosity. The title of the sermon is Commit to Gospel Generosity. He preached the wrong sermon. He just spent 30 minutes talking about contentment. 
poor guy got the wrong weekend. I have you right where I want you to be. I have you right where the text wants us to be. And here's the tipping point. You ready? Because you need everything else I've just said to understand this point. You and I will never reach the level of generosity that God wants us to reach until we are content in Him. It will not happen. I will not and you will not reach the level of generosity that God has called us to reach if we are not content in Him. If I start with generosity, if I start the sermon with generosity, you will immediately go to a circumstance in your life why you can't be that. I can't serve that way, I can't give that way, I can't sacrifice that way because of X in my life, which simply reveals what you're trying to find contentment in. But if I can show you from the text where contentment doesn't come from a circumstance, contentment comes from Jesus, then you'll start seeing generosity in a whole new way. And that's what Paul does. Notice the expression of contentment. Notice what contentment does. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, how Paul describes his life. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice. In other words, Paul's able to say, I view my life as a sacrifice. I can view my life as a sacrifice because I don't define my life by my circumstances. I define it in Christ. And so I, I see how I pour my life out in a whole new way. Look at the Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 15. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, where Philippi is, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Radical generosity. We'll talk more about them in a moment. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. Do you remember the verses we read just a few minutes ago about uh, 1 Timothy 6? Paul says godliness and contentment is great gain, and then we walk through all that. Here are the verses that come immediately after that passage. This is 1 Timothy 6, 18. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the secret. That which is truly life. Every eye right here. Godliness with contentment leads to a generosity that finds fulfillment and that the gathering of stuff will never give you. Man, nobody sees it that way. Everybody's consumed by the culture of man, and we need to see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is, with godliness and contentment, it's going to lead you to a point of sacrificial generosity, and in there you will be fulfilled, not in the receiving, but of the giving away of your life. Man, that's it's a secret. It's a secret. Now, let me pour my heart out to you. I know there's people that when they show up at church, they don't like to hear about money. And 
you know that I have made a commitment to preach the Bible to you, even if it's topics you don't like, okay? And here's what I've discovered. I can stand up here and preach on generosity all day long. I can show you verse after verse how understanding the gospel ought to lead to generosity. I can show you how often Jesus talked about money in the gospels. I can fill your head with verse after verse, command after command on giving. But listen, right here. Until our heart is content in Jesus, until he's enough no matter what, nothing's going to change. Because the issue really isn't me convincing you or motivating you. The issue really is, is Jesus enough? Is your soul at rest in Him alone? Here's the whole point of today's message in one sentence. And you're like, why didn't you just give us the sentence and we'd already be out of here? Here's the sentence. Commitment to generosity comes from contentment in Jesus. Commitment to generosity comes from contentment in Jesus. Let me, let me use the Philippians as a very quick example of their generosity, the kind of generosity that contentment will lead you to. Very quickly, number one, their generosity was sacrificial. I'm going to give you eight things very fast. If you like taking notes, you better hurry. Number one, it's sacrificial. Go to 2 Corinthians 8. We don't have time to read it this morning where Paul refers to the Philippians when he's talking to the Corinthians and talks about how in their test of affliction, in their extreme poverty, they gave beyond their means. They were sacrificial. And you can't get there without contentment in Christ. Number two, they were abnormal. Chapter, or, uh, chapter 4, verse 15 says, No one else partnered like this. They were in a league all by themselves. Number three, it was natural. Their generosity was natural. Verse 16 says, Even in Thessalonica, here's the deal. If you know the history here, um, Paul leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica and it's about a two-week time difference, which means in two weeks the Philippians got together, took a collection, and in biblical times, mind you, had it delivered to Paul, which just proves to me they weren't Baptist. Because it takes six months for Baptists to decide on the color of carpet, all right? The Philippians in two weeks in biblical times had come together. It was a very natural response for them to be generous. Number four, it was habitual. Uh, verse 16 says that Paul says they did it once and again, that it was an ongoing part of their life. Number five, it was plentiful. Verse 18 says, I received full payment and more. That is, they gave more than what was even needed. How awesome is that? Uh, uh, number six, it was missional. Verse 15 says, no church entered into partnership. It's the same word Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 5. In other words, the Philippians gave because they felt like they were a part of something. I'm going to go on a tangent here. Man, I, I, don't, I don't want our sacrifice of time, of money, of life to be because you're arm twisted. I want us to give and sacrifice together because we feel called to be partners in this mission. We're more than friends. We're more than pastor, church member. We're partners in the mission of Jesus Christ, and that requires sacrifice among all. 
But how many of us really see ourselves as partners in this mission? The Philippians did. They partnered with Paul on day one for the sake of the gospel. Number uh, seven, it was faithful. By faithful, I mean full of faith. Uh, Verse 19, Paul quotes to them, God will supply every need that you have according to the riches in Christ Jesus. Meaning the way they were giving, they really had to trust God for their needs to be supplied. I've often said don't quote that verse unless you're giving like the Philippians because the Philippians needed that verse. If God didn't come through and provide, they would have nothing because of their generosity. And lastly, it was spiritual. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, God will complete the work that he began. Meaning at the end of the day, time, money, all that type of stuff, it's, it's not about that. It's about the overall work of God's sanctifying you and growing you into maturity. The point is simply, we're never going to get there until our heart is content in Christ. All right, I'll close with this. Two enemies that are going to keep you from this secret. Two enemies that are going to fight against you for contentment. I'm going to take it from verse 4 and verse 6, and then we're out of here. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. There's one. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's number two. So here are the two things that are going to fight against everything I'm talking about this morning, and it's this. Number one is misplaced treasure. Misplaced treasure. Rejoice in the Lord. That is, one of the things that will fight against your contentment is finding joy in the wrong things. It's finding joy in temporary things that are passing. That's the constant fight, the constant battle. So I want you to kindle your joy in Christ. How? By returning to the gospel every day. Shocker, I know, right? I can't believe you just said go to the gospel every day. Yes! Kindle your joy in Christ by returning to the gospel every day. Here's what I mean. Here's what I want you to practically do every day. I want you to think more about what you deserve than what you desire. Think more about what you deserve rather than what you desire. In other words, I deserve because of my sin hell. I deserve because of my sin wrath. I deserve because of my sin judgment. But what I've received because of Jesus is grace. What I've received is love and mercy and righteousness. And what I've received is Jesus. So if I think daily about what I deserved, it puts my desires in perspective. Or I'll put it this way. If hell is your point of reference every day, then every day is fantastic. (laughs) And I'm serious. If you think about what you deserve, then even if you don't get out of your prison, you're good in God. Because you'll never have a day if you know Jesus where you get less than you deserve. And I'm not trying to belittle anybody, but even if you go through small hell on earth, rejoice that you will not go through hell for eternity. 
You will never be given less than you deserve because you have Jesus. And so when you, when you think about that, not what do I desire in life, but what do I deserve in life and what I've received in life because of Christ, it kindles a joy in your heart that things will never give you. And here's the last enemy, is misplaced trust. Misplaced trust. I take this from do not be anxious, but pray. And by the way, this is not saying do not be anxious, period. It's saying do not be anxious, but pray. In other words, you will be anxious. Amen? Anybody anxious this morning? Anybody worried about something? Anybody going through something where there's tension in your life? You will be anxious, but you fight that anxiety. What if I don't get that job? What if I lose this? What about, what about, what about, what about, what about, what about? you fight that anxiety with faith. How? Through prayer. In other words, you won't be very content if you don't spend a lot of time praying. Because what prayer is going to force you to do is say, do I trust God or my paycheck? Do I trust God or my employer? And you fight that anxiety that will come and attack with prayer, 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 and thanksgiving to God. Everything that I've just called you to this morning, there will be enemies fighting against it today. And you're going to have to fight for your treasure and fight for your trust. Rejoice in the Lord and do not be anxious, but pray. So I I end with this. Here's the question I want you to think about. What does your generosity tell you about your contentment? What does your generosity tell you about your contentment? Are you striving to keep up with the shiny, happy people, the lives that you see around you? Or are you at peace in God? Because the point of Philippians 4 is this. Commitment to generosity comes from contentment in Jesus. Commitment to generosity comes from contentment in Jesus. And in our culture, (laughs) that's a status you're not going to find on Facebook. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning, this, this secret of contentment of our soul being at rest in You no matter what we have. No matter whether we're abounding or lacking, we are at peace. And we're at peace because of the strength that You give us in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we're able to view our life as a sacrifice in so many ways. Holy Spirit, please pierce our hearts, reveal to our minds just based on our lifestyle, what we're looking to to find contentment in life. I pray for that person here today that does not know Jesus. And they can't even begin to experience contentment because they've never experienced Christ. I pray that today they would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ today. Others in this room, they know Jesus, but they have let the, the, the treasure of the world overshadow their rejoicing in you. And I pray that today you would bring us back to that place of being still and at peace 
in Christ. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.